There seems to be no end to humanity finding ways to be healthy. Has anyone noticed that? Or you just think about health fads, and uh, fad after fad has surfaced, claiming to be the answer to sorting out weight, fitness, and healthiness issues. Everyone know what I'm talking about? So I'm just going to give you a small historical survey of some of these uh, things, and I'm sure some of them will look familiar to you. Some of you may not uh, be aware of uh, this first one here, but uh, the first one's a bit of a classic one. Lucky strike cigarettes to keep a slender figure no one can deny. Reach for a lucky instead of a sweet. Yeah, shorten your life. Like, let's do that. That's a good plan. And some of you would remember the grapefruit diet, all right? Where you had to eat grapefruits and Sonder girls did this for a while. But let's face it, they're disgusting fruit, aren't they? <laughs> they taste terrible. And the only way we could eat it was loading it up with sugar, which kind of defies the point of the whole thing. Uh, some of you might have been aware of that one, Slim Fast, which was all about a shake for brekkie and lunch and then have a real meal at dinner. Uh, Dexatrim, you might have heard about that one, started in 1979. They ran into some troubles and needed to change their formula in 2000 because it was linked to an increased risk of stroke, which is really uncool. It's like you'd be skinnier, but you won't be able to use one side of your body, uh, which is a really bad idea. So they changed their, uh, their, their recipe there. 70s and 80s. Uh, there was uh, AIDS, which was appetite-suppressant candy, which was pulled down for obvious reasons. Uh, if you want to lose weight, you go and get AIDS. But that's, that's not what you do, all right? And uh, you remember that lady, all right? Uh, aerobics, of course, that was... Uh, who was that? Jane Fonda, yeah. And then we had this guy, the Atkins diet, which was all about high-protein and low-carbs. And one of the, um, the recent, uh, um, or what, this is actually uh, one of the latest kind of uh, techniques for losing weight is Ali, which is a, um, an FDA-approved drug which um, you can take, which uh, stops you from absorbing 25% absorbing of the fat that you eat. Uh, so uh, some of you can't look at it, go and get that. <laughs> but just think for a moment, how much time does humanity actually spend uh, ensuring that they're healthy physically. Like they spend a lot of time, right? And I want to ask, uh, how much time do, do humans spend thinking about being healthy in totality as a whole person? You see, that pill there, Ali, is, is actually not a particularly healthy, total human way of doing it. Because at the end of the day, it's kind of saying you can eat more fat. You can just eat what you want to eat and you take a pill and it takes 25% out of the fat that you eat. And it doesn't absorb that. You know, there's almost a sense in that. It's like, it kind of communicates underneath, doesn't it? Like you don't need as much discipline if you have our drug. You can kind of eat what you want. And then I kind of ask, well, that doesn't sound like a particularly healthy human. It might be a healthy physical human, but it's not a particularly healthy human in totality, if you think about uh, physical and spiritual kind of all put together, the non-physical part of humanity, it's not particularly healthy. Now, Paul in Ephesians has outlined over the first three chapters what a true human is. He's told us what God's made us to be. He's clarified what the church is. And last week, we looked at how to maintain unity in the church because there's one Father, one body, one baptism, and so on. And this week, you know what Paul's going to do? He's going to tell you how the church stays healthy. That's what he's going to do. So if you can grab your Bibles, I'd love for you to uh, do that. We're going to go to Ephesians 4. <coughs> Ephesians 4. And we'll start at verse 7. Ephesians 4, verse 7. It says this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We'll just stop there. 
In Ephesians 4, in this section of Ephesians 4, here's three things I think that we see. We see the victor, we see a generous victor, and we see the spoils of victory. Let's kick into the victor. Go back to verse uh, 8 there. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Who's that talking about? Anyone like to have a punt? It's either Jesus, Mary, or God. Jesus. Someone said, Jay, I'll take that. All right? Uh, It's Jesus. All right? And I want you just to stop here and notice something for a minute. All right? Jesus has won the victory. Now stop and look around at people around you. Can you do that? Do they look like they're on the winning team? You don't have to answer out loud. That's going to be awkward, right? Because you just looked at the person next to you. Here's my thing. Does it look like Jesus has won the victory? I mean, it needs to, right? Like you look at Christians, you go through your week, and you just go, even when you have a bit of a battle and a really hard time, there's a way that people look when they've actually won something, even when it looks like they're losing. You know, the church has been called lots of things, hasn't it? One of them was like the frozen chosen. Have you heard that one? Can anyone think of any others that the church is called without swear words? No, no, you can't think of any. All right. Here's the big idea. Do you look like you've won? Does the church look like they've won? Let me give you some contrast for this, right? Um, I want to show you a clip from, the, uh, from a movie about Hitler's last few days in the bunker. And some of you would have seen this. It's, it's a, uh, I find it a particularly... Um, I find the movie, I've seen bits and pieces of it um, at least twice. And I find it strangely alluring. But it's very depressing because it actually chronicles everything that happens uh, from, a, I think, a, an admin kind of person in the bunker at the end of, uh, at the end of Hitler's time of World War II. So um, I want you just to, I'll, I'll just roll it for a bit and um, just notice this whole thing about what they look like and, and how uh, you can tell that they've lost. This is the Feind gelungen, the Front in Walter Formation to sprechen. Im Süden hat der Gegner Zossen genommen und stößt auf Stahnsdorf vor. Der Feind operiert jetzt am nördlichen Stadtrand zwischen Frohnau und Pankow und im Osten ist der Feind bis zur Linie Lichtenberg-Marsdorf-Karlshorst gelangt. Mit dem Angriff Steiners wird das alles in Ordnung kommen. Mein Führer, Steiner, Steiner konnte nicht genügend Kräfte für einen Angriff massieren. Der Angriff Steiner ist nicht erfolgt. Es bleiben im Raum Keitel, Jodl, Krebs und Buttdorf. That's uh, enough, isn't it? I mean, you can tell that they're losing and that they've lost. Think about that in contrast to how the church is meant to operate. I mean, if they were winning, it would have looked way different to that, right? You know, <clears throat> my four boys play, uh, play rugby at the moment, and I'm sure lots of kids in, the, in this uh, church play sport. What, what's one thing when you're winning, and you're winning big time, what's one thing that you'll actually say when the opposition takes you out with a cheap shot? Look at the scoreboard, buddy. Don't you? Like, have a look up there. Like, that's pathetic. Right? And it's not that the cheap shot doesn't hurt. It's just like, we are kicking your hiney big time. And you can just do that sort of stuff. You can try to make my life difficult. But at the end of the day, we're actually on the right side of the scoreboard. And you just need to look at that. I mean, you, you look in the Bible, you see things like this in Isaiah 43, that God promises that he's going to be someone who's going to make streams flow in the wilderness, in the desert. So, you, you know, you're in the middle of a desert and you're going... 
I'm on the winning side. What does that look like when I'm in the middle of the desert and in the middle of a tough battle and I'm on the winning side? It means that I believe that God can make streams flow in the wilderness. Amen? That's what it means. And so even in the middle of what seems and feels like defeat, there's a confidence in there because the end is sure. Jesus has won the victory. There's a, a beautiful uh, verse in Isaiah uh, 33 verse 22 which I've personally been uh, holding on to very closely over the last month or so it's this optimistic confidence the Lord is our king he will save us I just think about that the Lord is our king he will save us see that's the kind of sense that you get when you know that you're on the winning team when you know how amazing Jesus is and how he's beaten every single enemy that exists and no one will ever get over the top of him, when you get in a hard spot, you still look like a winner. Even when you feel like a loser. Who knows you can feel like a loser sometimes? You can, right? Like a big-time loser. But even in those times, you know, one thing that you can say in those times is Isaiah 33, 22, right? The Lord is our king. He will save me. Maybe that's something that needs to be almost, I hesitate to say because it's a hindered background, the word, but it almost needs to be your mantra in hard times, you know, where you just go, Jesus is one and he's king, he'll save me. Now, I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know it will happen because he's the winner. You see, whether you've won or not influences what you expect to happen next. So what do you expect? In front of a big obstacle, do you say this? He's got this. He's got it. I don't have it. I'm way out of control and this is really, really dodgy, but I know he's got it. I know who he is and he's got it. God's got it. I don't need to worry about it. I mean, even think about failure. I have had a really ordinary 36 hours of a number of failures. Now, what, what does Jesus being the victor and me being part of his family do for me in the middle of failure? Do you know one thing I think it does in the middle of failure is it speeds up your comeback, <laughs> doesn't it? It speeds up your comeback. And you don't just go, I'm stuck here and I've got to get myself out of it. You're just going, okay, well, hang on. What are we doing again? That's right. Jesus came. He's come to the earth. He's beaten up all the bad guys, right? And it's just a mopping up operation. There's no danger that his storyline is ever going to be at risk. It's going to happen. All right, so let's get cracking. You know, and you get up and you work out, how does Jesus want to lead me so that I go with him in this victory? Amen? So let's be people, even in the midst of defeat, or what feels like defeat, that are optimistic and confident and come back quickly. Because that's the kind of thing that Jesus purchased by being the victor. He is the victor. I mean, you look at verse 8 there, you know what a general would do? A general would win a battle, bring a train of captives and all the booty, <laughs> all the spoils of war. That's what they'd do. And they'd come back into the town. And, they, and the glory would go to them, right? Because they were, they were the conquerors. They were the ones who won. Jesus is an amazing victor. He's an amazing victor. Number two, he's a generous victor. Now, flip over to Psalm 68. I'm just going to mess with your heads just for a moment. So you, go. you do that all the time, actually. Psalm 68. I just want you to put your, um, your analyzing, uh, turn on your analyze, analyzing brain cells and see if you can pick something here. Because Paul is quoting from Isaiah, uh, Psalm 68, I should say. Psalm 68, verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. What's different about this quote from the Ephesians 4 quote? Did anyone notice? Yeah, Jesus is doing the giving in Ephesians 4, but in Psalm 68, the giving's being given to the victor. Now, the text here in, in Psalm 68 originally had a mosaic fulfilment, right? And there's lots and lots of reasons, or sorry, variation, I should say, in opinion about the way that Paul uses the text and I'm not going to go into all of those, but here's the bottom line, right? 
This is the, I think this is probably the, the best way to go at this point in time, is just to say, when someone, when a, when a general goes in and conquers a group of people, what I said before happens. They get prisoners and they get booty, all right? What do you reckon generals or kings are going to do with the booty that they get? Well, they actually give out a whole bunch of that booty to people, right? To their loyal kind of followers. That's what they do. They, they distribute it to their loyal supporters. Now, I want to just pull up here for a minute. I'll tell you a quick story. I was at a um, Christian meeting this week where there was a bunch of pastors here, and this pastor uh, got up um, he shared about a conversation that he'd had with his father, who wasn't a Christian. And um, they had this conversation about governments. And uh, they talked about, the father talked about his disappointment with uh, democracy. Anyone else here ever felt disappointed with democracy? Yeah, right. It's pretty, it's good sometimes and not so good the rest of the time. Because it's got people running it. And this father was talking to his son, who's a pastor in a church. Father's not a Christian. He, and, and the son said, uh, the father said, um, what do you think would be the best system of government? And you know what the dad said? The dad said the best system of government would be a be benevolent dictator. A benevolent dictator. That's actually what we've got with Jesus. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. It is not a democracy. It is a theocracy, all right? Christ is in charge. He's the winner. He's the victor. It doesn't matter if we've got a billion people on the face of the planet to sign a petition against Jesus. He just gets to have his way because it's all his stuff. And he won the victory. And the good news about it is not that you need to be scared of Jesus. You need to be really thrilled with Jesus because the best... I think, I think the dad was right. I think the best system would be someone who's... A dictator in terms of the fact they've got absolute rule, but they're benevolent and they're good and they're kind and loving. That is the best system and that is the system of the universe. Number three. Some of you are going, we're going to be done in 10 minutes. This last one's a doozy, all right? So just sit in with me. Just uh, go back to Ephesians 4. Just going to look at... just. Let me read verse 11 to 13 again because we're just going to look at the spoils of victory according to uh, Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 11. Actually, just, we'll just read um, verse 7 and then 11, 12 and 13. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I mean, just pull up at the end there, at the end of verse 13, you just go, yeah, that's, Paul's just, you'd never go up to Paul and go, buddy, you need a bigger vision for what's going on here. See that at the end? He's just going, okay, here's the goal, all the fullness of Christ. That's what we're going for. And how does he actually get there? Well, he gets there through these generous gifts. You see, Paul's making it really clear that Jesus gives out gifts to his people, spiritual gifts. And what's the purpose of giving the church these gifts? So that the church grows up into all the fullness of Christ. So God gives grace, he gives gifts to everyone in the church for the healthiness of the church. Every single person in the room here has got a spiritual gift or some spiritual gifts that God's given you for the health of the church. So here's, I'm just kind of leading in here, here's the bottom line. It's wrong to be lazy and comfortable in your own world. And I, I want to even suggest to you this morning that if you aren't serving in the church, you don't get God's grace. Because you know what happens when you actually get a sense of what God's grace is and his kindness toward you and the fact that he's generous and he gives gifts, when that's had its full effect on you, you'll be like that. You'll be generous like him. And it's good to be reminded of this at this time in the year, right? Because we're starting to get into the back end of May and the shininess of the church year has worn off and the new year has worn off and we're busy Busyness has kicked in and some of us probably have stopped serving people. 
And I want to just say this morning, I'll just be straight with you, I think that's wrong. Because God didn't make any Christian to be a cul-de-sac. He gave everyone spiritual gifts to serve one another. So let me ask you, what are you using? What gift are you using? What's God calling you to serve in at the church here? You know, we look at people sometimes, have you ever had this, and mostly it's parents that say this, right? They'll look at their child or someone else's child and they'll see a really special gift and they'll say, that gift is being wasted because the kid's not doing anything with it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever heard someone say that? That person has got an amazing gift and it's being wasted. Well, I want to say something... uh, pretty directly to you here when you say that about someone who's got a gift out there it doesn't affect anyone else when they waste it when you say it about someone in the church it affects everyone else you can't just say that someone is wasting a gift in the church and that not be affecting other people in the church because that's the way that God made it to work he made it to work that you would have a gift and that you would use it and the body would be healthy God's family would be healthy because you're using your gift And I want to just throw something out to you too. Don't assume that you know what God has gifted you with. Don't assume that. I want to just give you a, a framework, a basic kind of framework that I think about when it comes to gifting and uh, a slightly different issue, calling, just so that you can get a bit of an idea of where I'm going with this. I think that working out where people are to serve in the church comes down to passion, skill and ministry. All right, let me just go through that. Passion is like, what are you interested in? What do you sacrifice? What would you be prepared to sacrifice your time to be good at? Now, I played the drums for years when I was young. There you go. I haven't said that too many times, but it felt pretty special. When I was young, I played the drums for heaps of years, right? But do you know what? It got to the point when I was playing the drums, and I probably played for, I don't know, 15 years, maybe. And do you know, it got to the point with me where I actually... I actually thought I could be really, really good at the drums if I worked hard, but I just didn't have the passion anymore. Now, I might be wrong. I may not have been able to be really, really good at the drums, and that's okay if I was wrong. But at that point in time, I just thought, it's going to require a level of me right now that I'm not prepared to put in. And so that was an indicator to me that my passion just kind of wasn't there. Just needed to kind of pull up. But, and there was other things in my life, and strangely enough, one of them was preaching, where I just went, I would be prepared to put in countless hours to be really good at that. So that's a bit of an indicator about where your passion is um, for something. It's a, it doesn't kind of tick all the boxes, but that gives you a little bit of an indication. And the cool thing is that, um, you know, for the first... I mean, I've, I don't know how many messages I've preached at the project. I remember reading something by Tim Keller saying it t- you've got to preach about 400 before you work out how to do it. So I still haven't worked out how to do it yet. Uh, still well short of that. But got into the project and even before the project I used to preach around the place when opportunities came up. I used to go down to Alra and there was a, an old man there that no one knew his age and he just used to pray all the time and literally that's what he did. Like if you ever wanted to have a prayer meeting you go and visit him in the nursing home and there's probably 15, 20 people in Alra Presbyterian Church at the time when I went out there and you just go out and there's this young guy preaching because he feels like God's called him to do it and he's passionate about it and and the, the old man comes out, he's a giant in the face, in the faith, I should say. Not, he's, he's not a, he was a very short man and hunched over, by the way. He used to ride his push bike from Warwick to Toowoomba all the time. And uh, what, what would he say? He'd just come out and thank this 20-something-year-old who didn't have a clue, but he had a passion for something. What have you got a passion for? The second one I just want to refer to here is skill. What can you actually do? Like, it's no good having a passion for leading worship if you can't sing. All right? I'm just saying. Like, find something else to do. That's why I'm not leading worship, partly. I don't have a passion for it, but I also don't have the skill. And if I started leading worship, probably no one would worship. All right? People would be crying out for some kind of quality control measures in the church. But here's the thing. Uh, You want to look for... um, the areas where you're skillful. But that's not it. And here's the big idea. Like this little matrix at the top, 
on the screen here is like, I think you need to have all three things at the same time, all right? Passion, skill, and ministry. Let me just uh, clarify that one. Ministry, does it help people? You might be passionate at it and you might be really good at it, but it just doesn't help anyone. And I know that might sound weird to you because we just kind of think, oh, if you're good at something, then it's going to help people. Well, no, not necessarily. Not in the church. You can go off and you can do that as much as you want. All right? But if it doesn't bless people at the end of the day, if it doesn't help people, um, it's probably not something that you need to sink your time into. So when I started preaching, people uh, used to say that they used to get stuff out of it. They'd come up and tell me stuff. They'd just go, oh man, that was really good. Now, it was ragged, right? It was rough. And my preaching still rough around the edges, right? And it still needs to grow. But people would come up and they'd go, hey, I was really blessed by that. And so rather than, I mean, sometimes, who's, who's ever done a spiritual gift survey? Has anyone ever done one of those? Because there's heaps of them out there. I think the best spiritual gift survey probably is for people to have a look at something like that and just have a crack at something in the church and see what happens. See if it works. See, within the, the unity of the body of Christ... God's family, each member has a distinctive part to play, a distinctive service to perform, so that the, the, the whole functions effectively and is healthy. Come across with me in your Bibles to Romans. Romans 12. I'm going to make you work a little bit in your Bibles today. So, Romans 12, verse 6. Romans 12 verse 6 says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching and the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Here's the bottom line. God decides what gift he wants to give you. So you need to stop bothering about someone else's gift and how they've got a cooler gift than you. Like there aren't Ferrari gifts and like, I don't know, combi gifts. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? We, we, had a, uh, we had a guy in a church that I went to who I've never seen anyone with the gift of putting out chairs like this guy, right? He did it with a string line. I'm not even making it up. He'd get a string line out, he'd get the chairs all in line and I just, I'm just going, that's really cool, man. And you're just kicking hiding in terms of actually setting up chairs in a way that's excellent. But it wasn't me. Like, you'll never see me with a string line setting up chairs. And I'm not saying that it has to be, but that's just where he was at. Like, let's, let's just, you know, let's go back to this whole notion that Jesus is the victor and he can give to people what they want. So let's not get jealous i mean do you get the point like it's all grace right so how silly would how silly is it to get jealous about the fact that someone else has got a gift that you want maybe ask god for it maybe he'll give it to you and here's the other thing uh, i don't think that spiritual gifts are necessarily static either like i don't think you kind of start at the start of your spiritual life where god comes into your life and changes you and you just kind of get that's it you do those things for the next 60 years. I, I think that there's, there's a real way that God can actually come by his spirit and give someone a particular gift for a particular period of time and then not have it anymore. Like I think it can be a very, very fluid kind of thing. God can give and take gifts whenever he chooses to do so. And a quick tip, don't ever say that you're not a church planner, which is what I said. My story in my life is a story of God taking me into areas where I didn't think I was skilled or gifted and him doing stuff through me. So you don't just want to sit there and just go, yeah, I got that squared away. I've worked out what my skill and my gifting is because you know what he might do? He just might land something on you and all of a sudden you're doing something you never thought you'd do. And you know what? I'll tell you something, that will be the best time of your life in your spiritual walk when that happens. You sit in, you get sedentary and... Um, comfortable and a nice recliner chair saying I've got this all worked out and uh, that will be um, way less than what God 
has for you. Come back with me to Ephesians 4. I want you to notice something about Ephesians 4. If you go down to verse 11 in Ephesians 4 there, what, you notice something about the gifts that are actually talked about there. They're actually gifts for the church leadership. See that? It's actually not a listing of gifts like you see in 1 Corinthians 12 and we just looked at Romans 12 where it's kind of cataloguing a whole bunch of gifts that you might actually seek for individual members in the body. It's actually giftings that are actually given to leadership in the church. Why? So that every individual member's gifts can be unleashed. That's, that's what it's about. You see, those that are named in Ephesians 4 verse 11 are to exercise their ministries in such a way as to help other members of the church to exercise their own respective ministries or serving. So what have, we, what have we got there? Well, we've got apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. just want to clarify a few things. This is going to be fun. Are you looking forward to this? Because I've never preached on prophecy at the project. Okay? And we're going to go there. We're going to do all these five. We're going to do them pretty, as, as quick as I can. But let's just say this, this is kind of a, um, a disclaimer at the start. There is a uniqueness about the apostle and the prophet in the early church, all right? We need to appreciate that. Ephesians 2.20 kind of refers to that, about how the church is built on the foundations, foundation of the apostles and the prophets, all right? Uh, there was a sense in which there was kind of an additional authority for them. They were the first witnesses and proclaimers of the gospel. I actually think that in Ephesians 4 verse 11, Paul's talking about something different than the original kind of apostles and prophets. Is everyone cool with that? So let's, um, I think what he's talking about is, is he's talking about the ongoing gifts uh, that God gives to the local church. So let's hook in, let's look at uh, apostle. All right, we'll start with apostle. Look, one of the primary functions, um, indeed probably the, the primary function of an apostle was preaching the gospel. All right? The big idea behind apostle is to be a sent one. So if you think about the disciples, the disciples were called apostles and they were also called disciples. All right? But the term disciple has more of an educational kind of a vibe to it. All right? it's, it's the connection that someone has to their, their teacher. Hebrews 4.1 actually tells us that the preeminent apostle, maybe we should go across to that. I'm just going to try and twist your arm into seeing what I'm talking about here by using the scriptures. That sounds terrible. This is what I think the scripture says. Hebrews 4 verse 1. Sorry, I've got the wrong. 3 verse 1. Thank you. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. All right. So let's start here. The guru, I shouldn't even say it that way, the preeminent apostle is who? Jesus, all right? So that's what we've got. We've got Jesus is the preeminent apostle, okay? But then you've actually got the 12 disciples, the apostles. So it looks like there's Jesus, and then in terms of authority, there's the 12 disciples. Go across to Matthew 10, verse 2 to 4. Matthew 10, verse 2 to 4. Listen to this, the names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So you've got Jesus, you've got the twelve apostles, right? And then you actually have other apostles, so go across to Acts 14, Acts 14. Acts 14, verse 14. Notice this. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, rah, rah, rah. All the point that I want to make out of that one is that there were other people outside of the 12 disciples that were apostles. All right? And obviously Judas dropped off for obvious reasons so and then if you go to Philippians 2 verse 25 you've actually got the same Greek word uh, for apostle being used of someone who's a messenger right 
So you've got this kind of structure, if you like, where Christ is the apostle. Uh, you've got the 12 apostles underneath that. You've got Paul kind of being added on to that. Uh, and then underneath that, you've got messengers to churches. All right. So let's just think for a minute about Paul. Paul was an apostle. What was Paul's role? Paul's role was to proclaim the gospel in both oral and written form as well as to establish and build up the churches. So there's a sense, if you look at Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 to 11, he kind of, it looks like Paul's actually saying that the kind of apostle that he was alongside the 11 other apostles was kind of finished with Paul. It's just kind of got that feel about it. You can go home and read that. Um, the uniqueness of his call connecting directly to Jesus seems to signify the end of that kind of apostleship. But there are other apostles in the, uh, in the church. And you can see in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 28 that apostles are like really critical and foundational for the church. And so that makes us kind of think, okay, if they're really important, um, what do they do? What is the gift of apostleship? And here's what I want to suggest to you. The gift of apostleship is a gift of initiating new works that bring people to Jesus. Do you that? The gift of apostleship is the gift of initiating new works that bring people to Jesus. It's like going to places where the gospel has not been preached. In Romans 15, Paul says this. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. What's he doing? Paul's planting churches. That's what he's doing. He's going, there's a place out there that's never heard of Jesus and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to start a new work so people can connect to Jesus and then I'm going to move on and I'm going to start other new works. I mean, there's a very real sense in which I think the gift of apostleship is someone who's a spiritual entrepreneur who leaves healthy churches and converts in their wake. So what are people with the gift of apostleship? Well, probably church planners. Probably, if you get the right ones. They go out and they start new things. They go and teach the gospel and illuminate. You see, they're a little bit different to missionaries. Missionaries kind of go out and they're missional. They, they go out and they just kind of um, bring about conversions and, and help people to come to Christ. The gift of apostleship is kind of more of an entrepreneurial kind of missionary, if that makes sense. How are you travelling? You doing okay? This is where it gets fun. All right? And I'm serious. I'm really excited about preaching on this, on prophecy. I want to uh, make a few kind of uh, just um, clarifying statements um, about gifts. I don't, have all the, I don't have time to deal with all the issues surrounding this area. So what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to make a few statements about spiritual gifts. And if you want to come and talk to me about that later, uh, you can. We are not cessationists at the project. Okay? So a cessationist is someone who believes that a bunch of spiritual gifts stopped operating once uh, Scripture... Uh, there's a bunch of different views on it. But basically, the, a bunch of the spiritual gifts stopped operating. That, that, that is my background in the Presbyterian Church. The Presbyterian Church, theologically, is cessationist. Um, we believe at the project that the spiritual gifts that the Bible talks about in the gifts passages are in operation. That's what we believe. The other day I was talking to someone and uh, they told me that they spoke in tongues. And you know what I say? I say, that's great. It's great. Go for it. And I just said, I don't. Not at the moment. Some of you go, oh, what is tongues? Well, we're not even getting into tongues today, but the bottom line is I, I think they're all in operation, okay? But we do think um, that it doesn't matter what gift you have, it doesn't make you more or less spiritual. It's a gift. We don't believe, there's a, there's a bunch of uh, theological, um, well, theologians that kind of think that, I hesitate to even call them theologians sometimes because they're not necessarily particularly rigorous when it comes to the scriptures sometimes. But there's people out there that, that think that um, speaking in tongues is evidence of having the Holy Spirit. And we, I don't agree with that. I think tongues is a gift. And I think kind of Paul makes it really clear. He says, Do, does everyone prophesy? Does everyone speak in tongues? And he's obviously got a, it's a rhetorical question. It says, no, they don't. Because tongues is a gift. And I think if you, if you can speak in tongues, go for it. All right? 
And Paul gives the rules about tongues. He says, you want to do it in public? Make sure you've got an interpreter. Why? Well, it all comes back to what the purpose of gifts is. What's the purpose of gifts? Someone tell me. Bless people in the church. All right? So that's why it doesn't make any sense. And I've been to churches before where someone gets up the front and prays in tongues and I'm sitting there and I'm going, I just haven't got a clue what you're talking about right now. So it makes complete sense in the context of church that Paul would say here, if you're going to do it publicly, you have an interpreter because gifts are about blessing the body. I'm really happy for people who have it, but I don't have it at this point in time. So here's the bottom line. Some people may come to the conclusion based on the project and coming on Sunday mornings that we don't believe in those gifts. And people come up and ask me strange questions sometimes about it. Well, I want to just be clear about it at this point in time. Um, we have got a very clear objective on a Sunday morning. You know what that is? We want anyone to be able to walk in the back door and be able to understand what's going on. And so, like, our heart for you is that you would invite your friends and your family that don't know Jesus to come to church and not have to have a 30-minute debrief at the end of it about what happened in church. It seems to me like spiritual gifts in the New Testament look like they operate most naturally in a smaller context, not in a corporate context. Like when you look at the rules about how to use spiritual gifts, it's always about kind of governing things and making sure it doesn't get out of hand in a corporate context. Do you get what I'm saying? And it doesn't mean that it can't happen because every now and then people do share things in the church and I'm open to that sort of stuff happening. But just in terms of our objective, Sunday morning we just want to keep it really clean and really clear so that people can connect in. That being said, prophets. Critical in the church. And I want to tell you that I have been ridiculously blessed by people with gifts of prophecy. Okay? It's been amazing in my life. Uh, some of the prophetic words that have been spoken over my life um, are kind of in my top five... <laughs> Uh, evidences for the existence of God because I've had people prophesy over me and I just go who told you you know and then I'm just going well I haven't told anyone so <laughs> and then it just becomes a God thing I mean it's just it's incredible it's amazing but let me as we launch into this because I'd love to see here's I'm going to steer you right up at this point in time only some of you okay it's just because I love you I would love to see more prophecy in the church. Okay? Because Paul says that. Earnestly desire the gifts and desire that you can prophesy. Some of you are going, I knew I should have gone to a different church today. Let me make a few comments um, about Scripture as we kick into this. Nothing has authority over people's lives like Scripture does. Prophecy does not add to Scripture. Prophecies in our day do not add to Scripture. They are tested by Scripture. Scripture is closed and it's final and it's foundational. So if anyone in the church here comes up with a prophecy, we don't for a second think that there's a book of the Bible that's missing and they're going to come and they're going to bless us with this extra book of the Bible. We think, no, the scripture is closed, God's revelation is finished there and any prophecy that comes is subordinate to that. It's not on the same level as that. It's not in construction. Come with me across to 1 Corinthians 14. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians 14. You can see this happening. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37 to 38. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognise this, he's not recognised. What's Paul saying? He's going, his words that God's inspiring through him are authoritative. That's what he's saying. So if someone comes along and they think that they're, they think that they're a prophet and they don't agree with Paul's words, they're wrong. All right? Because New Testament prophecy is subordinate to Scripture, always. And Paul talks Scripture, New Testament prophets talk less than Scripture. 
Come with me across to uh, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're just going to start at verse 17. In the last days it shall be, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall do what? Prophesy. Okay? So, if you're on the ball here, you go back and you just go, okay, so if God's pouring out his spirit and prophecy is actually going to happen as a result of that, we go back to the start of verse 17 where it talks about in the last days. And you might ask the question, uh, what are the last days? Well, come across to Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to give you guys RSI. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last what? Days. All right? So what are the last days? Now. Before Christ comes back. We're, we're in the last days right now. And if that's the case, then we should expect prophecy to be happening. Acts 2 verse 38 to 39, later on in the passage we were just looking at there before, and Peter said to them, Repent, be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's what that promise is. That's what Peter was actually talking about back there in Acts 2. But here's the catch. God's going to pour out his spirit and people are going to prophesy, but not everyone is going to do it. Come with me across to 1 Corinthians 12, 29. One Corinthians 12, 29. You can answer these questions as we go through. They're rhetorical. Are all apostles? What's the answer? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all works, all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? God's going to pour out his spirit in the last days, which is the days that we're living in, and people will prophesy, but not everyone will prophesy. And this prophecy will be spirit prompted, but not divine authority. It's not on the same level as scripture. It's from the Spirit, sustained by the Spirit, but may be mixed with error, which is why it actually needs to be tested. And I don't want you to get lost here, okay? And some of John Piper's stuff is particularly helpful on this. Think about, um, he, he talks about uh, the gift of teaching. Now here's the bottom line, I probably have the gift of teaching. Teaching is prompted, and, and we're not, when the Bible talks about teaching, it's not talking about someone teaching maths, okay? Which is great, all right? If you're gifted at teaching maths, do it. But that's not the gift that the Bible's talking about when it talks about the gift of teaching. The gift of teaching in the church was about laying down, almost in a methodical way, the teachings of the apostles in the local church. That's what it is. So in, in that sense, God's given me and Matt and other people in the church that job to do. Now here's the thing, teaching is prompted and sustained by the Spirit and is based on the Word, but when a teacher is teaching, are they operating infallibly? No, they're not. So this is the thing, this is one of the things, like when, you, when you come to prophecy, people go, everything that they say has to be 100% true in terms of New Testament prophecy and the gift. And I'm saying, no, it doesn't. Because the gift of teaching doesn't have to be like that. And I can tell you, without any shadow of a doubt, I've said a bunch of things that are wrong. And I've stood up sometimes and actually said that I've said that things that are wrong. It, it doesn't matter at that level whether it's spirit prompted, in, uh, kind of undertaken by the spirit that he's carrying me along, that I'm preaching from the word. 
It doesn't guarantee that everything that I say is going to be exactly 100% right, which is why you need to check it out. But here's the bottom line. Even though teaching is not infallible, it's still great value to the church, isn't it? Even though it's not infallible. Now think about prophecy. God communicates a message, but it could get messed up by the messenger. True? Someone might perceive the revelation imperfectly. They might understand it imperfectly. They might communicate it imperfectly. I mean, this is, I, I think this is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where he says that we see in a mirror dimly. We just, we just don't see things always as clearly as we ought. And God might put something on your heart for you to tell someone else, and it just might get mixed, all right? And it might get a little bit messed up, and it might be a real mixed bag by the time it gets to someone. Does that mean that we are not going to do any kind of we're not going to have any kind of prophecy just because it can get mixed up? Well, I don't think that's a New Testament understanding of it. I think the New Testament understanding of it is test it. So go and test it. It's subordinate to Scripture. Test it in the, uh, in the hearing, I guess, of otherwise people who have followed Jesus for a long time. Come across to 1 Corinthians 14. You might still be there. 1 Corinthians 14. Just want to read the first three verses. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially, listen to Paul, that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, what's Paul doing? He's comparing prophecy and tongues. He's going, go for prophecy. If you get your shot at it, go for that one. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Do you see that? I mean, Paul's going, go after it. Now, you may not get it, and that's okay, because God gives gifts to whoever he wants, but go after it. And build up the church with it. Now, here's, uh, here's something Piper says. Piper talks about the fact that we need a third category. Most people, when they think about prophets, they think a true prophet and a false prophet. And we probably need, I, th I think he's right, I think we need a third category, we need a New Testament prophet. We need a category for a spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained, revelation-rooted, but mixed with imperfection and fallibility <laughs> prophet. True? 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21. Do not quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So I think there's a gift there that God communicates some stuff to someone, puts it on their heart, and then they need to go and set it loose. And this happens to me periodically. People come up to me and they say, hey, I've got a word for you. Okay, cool. I'm really keen to hear it. Whatever that thing is. I mean, it happened about a month ago, five weeks ago. I mean, in the middle of a really, really tight time in the, in the church back in 2015, I sat next to a lady uh, at this uh, city leaders network and she had this vision for me. And I think maybe, I mean, I always have to meet someone for the first time five times before I stop meeting them for the first time, but I don't remember ever meeting this lady. And she kind of came up to me a bit awkwardly at the end and said, I, you know, I was just doing small talk and I was about to leave and she goes... When we were worshipping, uh, God gave me a bit of a picture for you. And do you know what? It was right on. And the night before, I'd just given up on something that was important. And I decided, and the next morning, I'll tell you this, I got up the next morning and I went to CLN because I'd given up and I didn't want to do any other work. And so I thought, I'm just going to go and I'm going to sit in there and I'll let some people minister and I'll just be part of a group of pastors worshipping Jesus. And what happens? as a lady sitting beside me gets this vision and communicates this vision to me and uh, she doesn't say God told her stuff or she doesn't kind of claim authority, she doesn't have, but she just submitted it to me. And you know what she did after that? She wrote it down on a bit of paper and kept it in a handbag for the next time that I went along to church and it was right on. So here's my heart for you when it comes to prophecy. We have to finish, but here's my heart for you. Just be careful about the way that you say it, okay? Like, I'd be really happy if no one in the project ever went up to anyone else and said, God told me. 
Because that, that claims an authority that you don't have. And I don't know how many students over the years I've heard say, oh, or people even just saying, oh, God wants me to marry this person and then they end up marrying someone else. Oh, what happened to that? You know, It's like they've claimed an authority that they didn't have all right, and probably didn't test what, what they thought and it was a bit of a mixed bag and it ended up a little bit messy there. So here's, let me give you a couple of suggestions about how you can handle it. Here's one way I think you could put it. Um, I think maybe God's put something on my heart that I need to tell you. How's that one? What is that saying? Well, it's just respecting the fact that it mightn't be right. But it could be. But here's the thing. <laughs> what is, was that a part of a tourism campaign? You'll never, never know if you never, never go. Is that like the Northern Territory or something? Do you remember that one? It's a bit like that with prophecy, right? So, well, you'll never know. So set that sucker free. That's what I say. Don't go in and tell someone that God's told me something. Just go in and say, hey, uh, there's something on my heart for you and I just want to let you know and I, it might be from God. And let them work it out. Let them pray about it. Or what about this one? I've got something I want to share with you. You should test it. I mean, the person who came up with a word for me about four or five weeks ago, that's exactly what they said. They said, I feel like God's put something on my heart for you, but you need to go away and test it. All right? I trust that you hear that. In that language, what are you saying? You're actually saying that the revelation that I feel like God might have given me for you is subordinate to Scripture, and I'm not claiming authority that I don't have. And what's the point of it? The point of it, according to 1 Corinthians 14, to build up the body for consolation and encouragement. Okay? Now, I've had people come up to me and say they've had words for me. And some of them, one of them actually happened this year. Someone came up to me this year and told me that they had a word for me, and then they tore strips off me. All right? That is not... Like, that's going to go in my top three moments that I've had where people have ripped into me, all right? That is not a good use of the gift of prophecy because that's not its purpose. Its purpose is not to come and rip someone down. Its purpose is to bring consolation, encouragement and to build people up. Does that make sense? So whenever you have a word that you think might build someone up and bring consolation and encouragement, let the sucker go, all right? Be careful how you let it go. Don't be a mad person the way that you let it go, but let it go and go and tell someone. And pray for them or something, all right? And who knows what God might do through it. I'm going to finish really quick. The, uh, in Ephesians, we've got uh, three more categories, really quickly. We've got evangelists, all right? It's pretty straightforward. Evangelists are people who go out and preach the gospel to unbelievers. The gift of evangelism doesn't actually show up again uh, in, in, the, uh, in the New Testament. It kind of pops up here. And, and part of the reason some of the commentators think is that evangelism is, uh, is a gift that's almost outside the church. It's kind of on the front line, so it's not something that's actually moving kind of internally in the church as much. But uh, 2 Timothy 4 verse 5, Timothy's to do the work of an evangelist. It kind of pops up around the place, but in terms of an actual spiritual gift in the list, it just doesn't actually pop up there. Uh, and then the last two categories there are uh, Paul turning... Uh, from what some say is from itinerant ministry to local ministry. Maybe. But I think God gives these gifts for the body uh, locally. Pastors and teachers. Pastors literally are shepherds. Now, I don't like the term pastor, partially because my first name starts with P. All right? But there's another reason for it too, is that the title pastor shows up like maybe even less than a handful of times. In, in the scriptures and I, I uh, reluctantly will call myself a pastor all right and you can call me pastor Pete if you really want to annoy me um, at, at the end of the day I think that that is part of the calling that God's called Matt and I in particular too but it's not just Matt and I it's other staff that we've got as well and then teachers well what does a teacher do exposit apply scripture transmit the apostolic kind of principles that have been laid down in scripture and urging people to live by what they read let me finish here who here knows someone who says you don't have to go to church to be a christian 
Okay. You have to be part of a local church. Sorry, you have to be part of the church family, and I'm talking globally, to be a healthy Christian. Can I say that? Because these are the gifts that God's given. Like I just kind of go, so for someone who's just sitting over there, can you tell me who your apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher and pastor is? Can you tell me who that is? Because this is where Paul's going. He's going, here's how you have a healthy body. What happens? God gives gifts to the leadership in the church to bless the church and to keep it healthy. And you all need to be in a place, and every single person who's a, who's a Christian needs to be in a place where God's God-given gifts to leadership are there that help to unleash your gifts. That's what it's meant to be about. That's kind of that's my job. It's it's Matt's job. It's the elders' job in the church here at the project is to operate and to lead you in a way that unleashes the gifts that God's given you. And we just go nuts <laughs> with gifts. Who's up for that? Like, let's do that. Like, let's go nuts. And like, uh, man, I tell you. I just got excited about there being more prophecy in the project. And I am really excited about it. And for some of you, that might freak you out. And that's okay. I'm not going to come in with some kind of onion kind of necklace or garlic necklace around my, head, around my neck. And it's not, like, do you get what I'm saying? That the purpose of this stuff is for building up the body. It's not to get weird. You know? We're not, we're not kind of... I don't think God talks about this stuff through Paul so that churches will get really weird. He talks about this stuff because there's a real blessing that could come out of it and does come out of it. 